His sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And he was in agony. You know, when we started Watermark, some of us were praying, and we felt like, you know, what, what kind of church did we want? What kind of church did we feel like God wanted us to have in, in this midst of this part of Hong Kong Island? Um, we, we wanted to be a church where people were known. We felt like there were a lot of clubs that people just kind of bop in and bop out, and there's actually a lot of churches where people just kind of bop in and bop out, and no one really knows anybody because we're so busy, but we wanted our church to be different. We felt like God was calling us to have his church be different. We wanted the church to be raw and authentic and real. Um, I get in trouble sometimes when I say raw because people say, you can't, don't say raw, say organic. And so organic, and we wanted it to be organic. And one of our greatest fears was that you would look at the staff or the elders or the pastors and that you would think of them as plastic people. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but I, I've thought about that. I've gone to churches where I look up and I wonder what's going on inside of that person. Are they real? Are they, could I get to know them? Is that something that they would allow? Or are they just kind of plastic? You know, you grew up in churches all the time where people you ask how you're doing and everybody's answer is always, oh, great, I'm doing really good. Thank you very much. And I just grew up in church where everybody was doing really good and great. And except for me, I, I had a hard time sometimes, but I was never always doing great. And we wanted Watermark to be different than that. Um, we wanted you to know the staff and the people, and we wanted it to be a family. Uh, so I want to share some things with you about myself so you're going to get bored as you get to hear more if you've been here for a while. But one of the things you have to know is that I, I, I can't hear out of one of my ears. So I'm actually deaf in, in, in one of my ears. And sometimes people will say, well, you, he was really rude because I started talking to him and he just walked away and, and I kept talking. And, and, and if that happens, it's usually uh, because I, I just didn't hear you and because and you're speaking into my, my bad ear. Now, as a husband, it's really helpful because sometimes your wife is talking to you. And, and most husbands use the excuse already, I can't hear you, uh, but... For me, that's really true. And so when I go to bed at night, I just lay down on my good ear, and I can't, I can't hear all the talking going on. Uh, I learned if you just go, uh-huh, 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 then everything's okay, right? Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of sentimental. I have this weirdness about me that I attach uh, meaning, meaning and experiences to things in my life, and I carry them around. And so when we got married, Christina was always trying to get rid of my sweatshirts and my, my shoes that had duct tape on them. And I had always found out I, I didn't go to the trash can in our house because she would put them out the trash can outside. So when I'd come home, I'd go to the trash can outside and I'd grab my favorite pair of shoes out there yeah, because they had meaning. And even though they looked uh, like junk. Before we got married, I bought this watch. I love, I, I, I love watches. But as a pastor, that's kind of a, a bad thing to, to love because you can't afford those things. But uh, selfishly, I felt like, okay, I, I got three months before I got married. I have some money left over, and, and, and who knows if I'll ever be able to get another watch. Who knows if my wife will ever let me buy another watch. By the way, this is not an advertisement for my wife asking, letting me buy another watch. Uh, but selfishly, I, I thought that, so I bought the watch selfishly. And when I look at the watch, occasionally, I'm reminded of my selfishness. 
I remember when we were getting married, I was sitting in the church, and the bell rang, and the doors opened, and I looked at my watch, and I looked back, and I saw Christina there all in white with her dad. I was like, wow. God is so good and amazing. And I remember that when I look at this watch sometimes. I've timed all of our kids' birth on this watch. One time, Rachel, our first child, was 16 hours, in, and Christina was in labor with her for 16 hours. It was getting really, really hard, and we were just the two of us and, and the doctor and a nurse. And the doctor came up, and he said, okay, this is the last push. If you don't get out this time, uh, we're going to have to do something uh, hard, difficult. And he, he picked up this phone, and all of a sudden, there's like eight people in the room, and forceps are coming out, and all these things are happening. And I was just praying, praying, okay, God, please let, let her... Let, her, let, let Rachel come out, let Rachel come out. And the last put, Ra- Rachel came out. And I was, wow, God is so good. And, and as I'm timing, I'm timing on my hand. Labor starts here, this given here. This, and so I'm keeping track and all these things. And, and, I, and I, at the end, I just put, God is good. I remember when I shared two weeks ago, Christina had the ectopic pregnancy and she's bleeding out. And I was in the hospital in Patia and I was sitting there and the doctor said, well, it might be five hours. And I put my watch down, I looked at it and I pushed a button and I wondered, would I have a wife in five hours? And four and a half hours later, the doctor came out and said, everything's going to be okay. And I thought, God is good. I remember two years later, I had a heart attack it was the middle of the night, like 2 o'clock in the morning, Sunday morning. Christina took me to the hospital. And I gave her my ring and my watch as I went in. And I said to her, I'll see you in heaven. And I came out. And I look at this watch and I said, man, God is good. I remember the birth of our second child, the adoption of our third. And then in the fourth, we were up at Matilda, and I was timing everything there. And Christina, because she has a blood condition, she couldn't take anything for painkillers. And we are trying to work it out, and it didn't work out. And she got in there, and she was in delivery. And she was, and it, it was so funny. Well, it wasn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> but when I think about it now, the, the, you know, the doctor, so Christina's, and, and Kate Kay's coming, you know, and, and, and Christina's going, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. And, and, and the doctor, who's Indian, goes, there's no Jesus here. No Jesus here. No Jesus. Because you're like, oh, 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 Jesus. Oh, Jesus. No Jesus here. And when Caitlin came out, I wrote on the back of my hand, Jesus was here. God is so faithful in our lives. Sometimes we attach his faithfulness to things like watches and songs and people. Sometimes we just forget But it seems to me on this journey that God's principal purpose for us is that he's trying to do everything he can to keep our eyes off of ourself and to put him on him. God's main goal in our life is to put our eyes off of ourself and to put them on him. Okay, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke for a while. We've come to this last week in Jesus' life. We basically said it's his last day and we're thinking about what it means for the rest of our lives. Remember, Luke is written by Dr. Luke. He was a physician. He had a friend who was probably a high-ranking government official, very wealthy. But persecution had started happening within the Roman Empire, and his friend wrote a letter to Luke and said, is it worth it? Is Jesus real? 
Is everything you told me true? Is it worth the suffering and the persecution? Should I hold on? And so Luke does all this compilation and interviews, and he brings all the research together, and he writes the gospel according to Luke as God's Holy Spirit indwells him and teaches him and shows him and helps him write, and he writes the book of Acts. In the passage so far in his last day, we've seen this. We've seen that in God's kingdom, success is serving people. Remember that? We said in God's kingdom, success is serving people. Now, our, our pride and our ambition in the world is going to tell us that success is serving ourselves. But the passage said that if we ultimately do that, we're going to fail. That the only way that we can succeed in God's kingdom is we realize that God served us ultimately and because he did, we can let go and serve other people. We don't need to worry about our fear and ambition because God served us. He's going to take care of us. We ask the question as we raise our children and educate them, are we educating our children so that they will have a lot of people serve them? Are we educating our children so that they will serve other people and be a success in God's kingdom and over and over we see that God does everything he can do to take our eyes off of ourselves and our eyes on him. We learned in this book last week that the Bible is a book of failures. We learned that there's a lot of failures in the Bible. And what we learned was that God knows that we're going to fail. He expects us to fail. We talked about Peter and Peter failing. And what we learned is that God does amazing things in our failures. We're a culture that's afraid to talk about failures. We don't want to be a failure. We don't want to mention it. But what the Bible says is that when we fail, God does amazing things. Some of us don't want to serve because we don't want to fail. Some of us want to do something, but we need to take 50 classes before we do that because we don't want to fail. But the passage says that when we fail, and God knows that we're going to fail, that God does something amazing. What he does is he wraps our failure in his grace, and he changes us. He says, for Peter, now that you failed, now I can use you. Now that you failed, now you can reach out to the other disciples, and you can be a part of their lives. But if you hadn't failed, Peter, I couldn't use you. We, we learned in the passage that even though we're going to let God down, God never, ever lets us down. Even though we're going to fail God today and tomorrow at our work and in our home and in our marriage, God never fails us. God's primary work again and again is to get our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes on him and to realize how good and wonderful and beautiful he is. And so today we come to this passage. It's a communion passage. And what I want to do is I just want to look at it really briefly. We're going to try something we've never tried before, which is always a danger. But we're going to look at the passage on communion, and I want to look at a couple things. Because I believe that as we as a church look at communion and allow God's Spirit to change us, we should change our thinking in a couple things. We're going to think differently about ourselves. We're going to think differently about other people. And we're going to think differently about our focus. We're going to think differently about our future. We're going to think differently about where we're heading the passage is written out for you in Luke 22, but before we get to Luke 22, you have to realize that Passover and communion started a long time before that. I mean, in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, about 2,000 years before what we're reading here, 
We're told that our father Abraham, the father of our faith, who waited 100 years to have a son, finally has a son, and God says, hey, I want to see if you love me or if you want to love this son more. And so he sends him to this faraway mountain, Mount Moriah, the mount where God will provide. And he goes, what I want you to do is I want you to make a mullock there, which means I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to sacrifice your son to me. I want you to take your eyes off yourself, and I want you to put your eyes on me. And so we're told that Abraham goes there, and he does that, and right as he's about to sacrifice his son, remember his son asked him, well, where's the lamb? What does Abraham say? He said, well, God will provide the lamb. Take your eyes off of yourself and realize that God wants to do something amazing in your life. And so God provides this ram, and it's caught in the bushes, and it's perfect, and he sacrificed it. A little later on in Genesis, we're told that there's this great famine that happens in the land, and no one has food, no one has water, and God does something amazing, and he takes these brothers who are in conflict, and he sells one brother as a slave, and Joseph goes to Egypt, and through this terrible, terrible failure in brotherhood and familyhood, he does something amazing, and he saves his people the passage says that 430 years pass, and there's a Pharaoh who no longer knows the God of Joseph. And the people of God have become to multiply and multiply and multiply, and they become a pain, and the Pharaoh has put them into slavery, into bondage, and life is terrible, terrible, terrible. And the passage says that at the right time, God sends a deliverer. He sends Moses in Genesis and Exodus 15. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And God brings judgment upon judgment upon judgment. And still Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. I want to be God. There is no other God. Often a lot like us in our lives, right? I want to be God. I don't want another God. And finally God says, okay, one more judgment. I'm going to send the angel of death. I'm going to send the angel of judgment and God warns Moses in the Exodus passage. He says, judgment is coming, but by the way, there is a way that you can escape from this. It's called a Passover meal. I mean, it's the only way that you're going to be able to escape this judgment. The only way that you're going to be free from death and from condemnation is that you're going to have to partake of this meal. You're going to kill a lamb, and then you're going to take a hyssop branch, and you're going to smear its blood all over the door. And whoever does this, when the angel comes, whoever does this, they're going to be saved. But whoever doesn't do this, whoever doesn't do this, they will face judgment, and they will perish. And I wonder, as I read that passage, were the Jewish people like us today? Were there some people in there going, well, did God really say that? I mean, do I really need to make my doorway dirty with blood? And I'm a good person. I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, I serve in the temple. I'm nice. I'm not as bad as that person. I wonder if there were people like us during that day who doubted God's word and doubted his goodness. But we're told in the Exodus passage that by the end of the day, in every house in Egypt, in every house, there was either a dead lamb or a dead person. There was either a dead lamb or a dead person. 
No one was going to be saved unless they had eaten the lamb and been covered by the blood. Um, everyone at the end of the day, think about this, everyone at the end of the day knew that the only reason they were alive because it was a little, furry, white, innocent animal had its throat slit and it died in their place. The Bible says that generation after generation after generation passed and year after year the father of the household would lead his family in a very specific ceremony the ceremony would always start like this. The youngest person in the family would ask a question. They would say, why is this night different than all the other nights? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And the ceremony would include things like unleavened bread, which was a symbol of haste and hardship in the wilderness. The ceremony would include bitter herbs, which symbolized their bondage and their slavery and their captivity. It would have a red stew that the composture and the mixture would look just like the bricks that they made. And in the ceremony, there would be four cups and they would do these toasts and they would basically toast God and thank him for his goodness in their life. They would thank him for their freedom, for their redemption, for their peace, for their new relationship with him. And then a lamb would be killed, and his blood would be stained everywhere. And everybody would remember that the only reason they're alive is because God is good. And somebody else had to die in their place. We get to Luke 22, and we fast forward about 1,500 years. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem. Man, we've been talking about this for like a year, right? He's gone to Jerusalem, and he's basically gone to Jerusalem to accomplish his exodus for God's people. I mean, he's going to do the exact same thing that Moses did in Egypt. He's going to do the exact same thing in Jerusalem for us. The people were in slavery. The people were in bondage. Now, remember, Jerusalem was going to explode. I mean, there was some, some Josephus and some scholars say there were 200,000 million people in Jerusalem during the festival. I mean, this is a special Passover because there's this rabbi and he was changing things around and everybody wanted to be at Jerusalem. So two million people, some of the estimates are there were about 200,000 families. So 200,000 families at three o'clock in the afternoon would take their sheep and the priest would blow the hump horn, like a shofar. And at the same time, they would take their knives and they would cut the throat of the sheep. Can you imagine what that was like? 100,000 sheep dying at the same time? I mean, the sheep don't die well. They're bah, bah, bah. And at the same time, three o'clock, and you heard this loud noise. And the blood was gushing everywhere. I mean, it's told that there's thousands of priests. They had these silver and these gold bowls, and they went and they got the blood, and they ran up to the, the temple and to the, the, the altar, and they would pour the blood at the foot of the altar as a sacrifice, as, a, as, as an atonement for the sin. And we're told that in Jerusalem, there was this blood river that flowed out of the temple down into the Kidron, and sometimes it got two or three feet high because 100,000 sheep were killed 
so that the people's sin might be passed over and hidden for a little while. Remember, it's Jesus' last day, and the officials are out to kill him. We don't have it in your bulletin, but please go back, because in Luke 22, 1 through 6, you see this passage where the synagogue officials have conspired, and Satan enters Judas, and Judas says, I'll get him alone. I know you're worried about the crowds. I know that you're worried about if you grab him in the temple, there's going to be this huge revolt. I'll get him alone. I'm the money changer. I have all the money. So if he has to do something, I'm going to know where he's going to be. And the minute I know where he's going to be, I'm going to tell you. And so you can go and you can, you can capture him in this room because no one else will be there and it's going to be good. And Jesus, we're told, knows that. The officials are out to kill him. Judas has betrayed him. But he really desires to have this last Passover feast with his disciples. In Luke 22, he says, Jesus sent Peter and John. He throws a monkey wrench in there. So now Judas doesn't know where it's going to be. Only Peter and John know where it's going to be. And we're told in the passage that Peter and John go to prepare a meal now. I'd like to ask the communion stewards and the worship leaders to come forward. When you're ready, you'll come up and you're going to receive a red band. Don't do anything with it yet. You're going to receive both elements. Don't do anything with it yet. But as you think and as you come forward, wonder, what was it like on Passover? What was it like when you went to get your sheep? What was it like when the trumpet blowed and you slaughtered it? What was it like knowing that the only reason that you're there is because somebody had to die in your place? After you've received all the elements, go back to your seat and I'll come back up and we'll take them together as a family. First thing before we take the elements that I see in this passage about communion, and I think it's a challenge to us, is that when we come to God's word, the question is, why? Why are we taking communion today? Have we examined our lives? Have we asked the question that the little kids ask before communion? Why do we do this? Why is this any more special than today? The passage on verse 21, which you don't have here, but you have to go home and look at it, says immediately after Jesus did that, he told his disciples that one of them was going to betray him. Immediately the questions rounds out the same in each time in Greek, surely not I, surely not I, surely not I, surely not I. And then Judas looked him in the face and he said, Master, surely not I. And there was a big question. And we're told that they examined their hearts. And they examined their lives. And they wondered, were they the one who was going to betray him? Were they the one who was going to run away? Were they the ones who were going to fail him? The meal represents a covenant. It's a relationship between God and us. 
The Old Testament says that the sacrifice of sheep do not forgive sins. It just covers them up and points to the future where someone else will have to come and forgive the sins. And when we come to the communion elements and we take them, what we are saying is, what we are acknowledging is, is that we need Jesus. What we're saying is that Jesus is the only way. What we're saying is, I can work hard, I can do all these things, but in the end, I'm still broken and sinful, and I need Christ. I mean, every other religion, every other philosophy, every other thought of mankind is going to say that you get saved because you work hard and you do the right things and you're a good person. But when we come to the communion table, what Christianity is saying is that none of that is true. That we're here as a gift. And the question is, are we going to make that gift ours? Or are we going to eat of it and to realize what it means? The passage says that when we come to the table, we're called to continue examine our lives and to see if the grace that God has poured out upon us, has it changed us? Do we think differently now in light of the cross? Do we act differently in our homes? Do we act differently in our work? Do we act differently among our friends? Do we understand the massive cost it costs to forgive us? I mean, do our actions change? Are our hearts different? Do we ask the question maybe, you know, in light of what God has done for me, is this a good thing for me to be doing right now? In light of the sacrifice that Christ has made for me, is this the right choice for me? Do I understand grace? Have I allowed God to change me? Do I live today as if it cost Jesus his only son, cost God his only son? Do I live that way? When we come to the communion, it, it challenges us to think about ourselves, but also challenges us to think about our relationships. The passage says here, and we all know that communion was a family thing, and you did it among your family. But here for the first time, Jesus is separating these men from their family. He's bringing them together. And basically what he's saying is that there is a new family. It's not a DNA family, but it's a, it's a spiritual family. And, and he's going to tell us throughout the scripture that this spiritual family brought together by his blood and his sacrifice is stronger than our biological families. I mean, we, we, we looked at it last week. Last week, the disciples got together, and they were arguing over who's going to be the greatest and who's going to serve whom. And Jesus said to them, that's not how we act in God's family. That's not how we treat each other. And the only way that we can treat each other the way that God wants us to is if we trust him. I mean, at the Passover meal, we're called to examine our relationships. I mean, are our relationships strong? Are we a part of God's family? Are we a part of God's family and people here? Or do we just drop by because we want to feel good about ourselves? Are we, are we, are we plastic people? Communion calls us to examine our relationships with others and to ask us, how are we doing with the person next door to us? 
Because they are our family. They're who we're going to be in heaven with forever. Father, I just come before you and just confess my sin and selfishness. So often, the thought, focus and thought is of, of myself, and it's not on you. Father, we come to you as your people, and we confess our brokenness and our sin. We ask you to change us, to, to redeem us, to fix us, to, to bring us back the way we are supposed to be. Help us to think of ourselves in the right way in light of communion. Help us to realize what it means to have this person die for us. And the only reason that we are here, the only reason that we have hope, the only reason that we have a future is because someone else died for us. Father, I confess the way I treat my brothers and sisters sometimes. I have to admit that often I'm like the disciples. I'm looking for people to serve me instead of me serving them. Father, I pray for us as a church. I know that there are a lot of people here who struggle with these things, and I pray, Lord, for your forgiveness. I pray for your mercy. I pray that your grace would change us and would make us a different people, and people would look at this, this, this congregation, your family, and say something's different here. And they would ask questions just as they did the early church. Father, in the midst of all this, we need you desperately, and we know that you know that we're going to fail. So we thank you for your son, whose blood brings us life and erases our sin. We love you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and he broke it. And what he said next would have freaked everybody out. Because for 1,500 years, he said this bread represents the bread of haste and the bread of pain and the bread of suffering and the bread of wandering in the wilderness. But this time, what he says is this bread represents me. The pain and the suffering, the brokenness that I will face for you. The body of Christ broken for you. We're told a little while later, he took a cup no one knows which cup it was out of the four. Maybe it was the third one, the cup of redemption, the cup of payback, a buyback. And this time he said, instead of this blood, this cup represents the blood of lambs that were shed for you to cover you so that you'll have to do it again and again and again, focusing towards when it's going to be finished. This time he says, this is my blood. This is what all the lambs for 2,000 years have pointed to. And in my life, your sin is forgiven. You have a new relationship now. You're brought back to the Father. You're my children. The blood of Christ shed for you. One final thought. As we come to communion... And we think about the wine, we think about the bread, we think about the sacrifice, we think about the lamb, we think about Jesus. In verse 19, we're told something very special. 
He said he had come and taken some bread and he given thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given, which is paid out. It's actually, it's, 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 it's a banker's term. He, he just, he is paid in full. My body's spent on you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that word remembrance means to continually, continually, continually put it before your face. The Greeks would say that time is like an eraser and it gets into our mind and it erases us and we forget things. Jesus is saying that basically in our lives, we're going to become so busy that Hong Kong is going to get out of control. And he's saying that sometimes we're going to, we're going to forget him. And we're called to come to the communion table and to remember, and to remember his goodness. Verse 15 says that we'll remember his desire to be with us. The word actually means I desire to desire. It actually means lust. The passage says that God lusts after you. He wants to be with you so much. He wants to be with you and have a relationship with you. And sometimes in the busyness we forget that. But Jesus says, remember, remember. Verse 15 and 19 says, we were to remember because of the suffering. We were to remember that Christ is humiliated. We remember that he hangs on a tree. We were to remember the pain. We were to remember as we walk through life and we feel broken and lost and forsaken and useless that we have a Savior who died for us. And through his death, we're given ultimate value. Jesus said, remember this. Because you're going to get busy and you're going to forget this. He says, remember throughout the whole passage that I am in control of all things. I know they're looking for me at the house, and so I go to a different place. I know they want to grab me before the Passover and get it done and kill me, but I have a different plan. I know what's going on in your life. You're living life and it's terrible and it's hard or it's great and you're wondering if he's there and you're wondering if he's in control and you're wondering if he's in our life and he's working through our lives. And when we look at the cup and when we look at the cross and we look at God's word, we're called to remember that he's with us, that he'll never forsake us. Never gives up on us. He's the God of second chances. The question is, are we going to take him up on that? Are we going to try to be and live life the way we want to? I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. They're going to finish this up with one or two songs. When you came up, you got a band, a red band. As Jeremy leads us in worship, what I would like you to do is I'd like you to turn to the person next to you, your family member, and I would like you to have them tie that band around your wrist nicely, not too tight, no blue fingers. My hope and my prayer is that this piece of thread around our wrist is a reminder. It calls us to memory of all that God has done.
and all his goodness. I'll come up and close this in a minute. We are the people of God. Purchased by his life, his blood shed for us. The passage says he just gave it all. In the blood, he gave it all. In his body, he gave it all. Because he knew that we, we needed it all. My prayer is as you walk away from this communion time, that you'd realize that as God's people, we need to start thinking differently about ourselves. Maybe some of us need to start acting like God's people. As God's people, we need to start thinking differently about the people around us. Maybe to realize that they're our family. And somehow God supernaturally brought us together by his design. He knew that we needed each other. Maybe we need to start acting like a family. My prayer is as we leave here that our focus, our thoughts, would always be about remembrance. Would always be about remembering God, Christ on a tree, what he's done for us, how he's purchased our life, how he cares for us. There's nothing we need to fear. There's nothing we need to doubt because he's in control of everything, even his own death. When we start living like that, will we trust him? Because he's good. My hope is that you would carry this band with you for a day or two or however long. And every time you look down on it, you remember a Savior broken for you. You remember that your only reason that we're here is because somebody died for us who didn't deserve it. We'd ask God to use those thoughts in his spirit to change us and to make us his people more and more. Christ's body broken for you. God in control of everything in your life. God passionately pursuing you and wanting to have a relationship with you. A God who says he's going to do it to the end. That I'm going to be with you till the end, till the kingdom comes. We eat it together in the kingdom. I'm going to bring you all the way if you trust me. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your words that are so powerful. But Lord, we pray that we would eat them. We would eat you. We would eat your word. We would allow your spirit to change us. Help us to be in awe of your grace. Help us to be in awe of your mercy. Help us to be in awe of goodness. And Lord, we just confess when we're not. Because the passage says that we're going to forget. We're going to become busy. Help us to remember. Help us to help each other remember. Help us to come alongside each other when we're in the midst of the, the junk. And we bring to memory for our brother and sister the Savior who died for us. And because he did, everything else is going to be okay. Everything else is going to be okay. Lord, I pray for those who didn't receive a band in here today. We have a band ready for them. 
My prayer is that they would ask a lot of questions and try to understand what does it mean that Christ had to die for them? What does it mean to, to have a sacrifice pay for their, 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 their rebellion, their bondage, their idols? I pray that they would ask people, they'd come up and ask the elders, ask myself, so we could talk to them about the most wonderful thing in our life. It's a Savior who loves us so much and he pursues us so much and he never gives up on us. And he's in control of our lives, and we could trust him. We can trust him. Father, help us to be a church that acts like your people, loves like your people, is a community like your people. And we know that the only way this is going to happen is you change us. So, Lord, we're thankful that you continually do things in our life to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put them on you. Sometimes you use a song, sometimes you use a piece of metal, junk watch, but more often than not, you use the body and the bread broken for us. Lord, we love you. We need you desperately. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you back here next Sunday.